welcome to episode 43 of Craft, Cook, Read, Repeat, a conversation about crafting food and books. I'm Monica. And I'm Courtney. Today is Thursday, June 25th, 2020. Big thank you to all of our listeners, both old and new. I hope this podcast will continue to be something you put on repeat. How's it going, Courtney? It's moving forward, smack in the middle of June gloom. Yes. I don't, are you fogged in? We're fogged in. Of course we're fogged in. Excellent. Actually, we did see the sun a little bit for a moment or two yesterday, so that was exciting. I feel like this week, nothing really horrible and new has happened. <laughs> it's yeah. all the same stuff. Yes. I was talking to a friend who is far away, and she has friends in Florida, and was saying how it's like back to whatever normal is. Yeah, and nobody wears masks. Yeah, nobody's wearing masks, and um, you can do whatever you want, and people are at restaurants and bars, and I think that that's astonishing. <laughs> Sorry, Floridians, but I'm still making masks, and it's, it's the law here to wear a mask everywhere. We're even seeing people who are out running and biking with masks on, and it's pretty much become our normal and I'm grateful for that. It feels like the one small measure we can do. I wasn't trying to bully Florida into wearing masks, but it probably wouldn't hurt. <laughs> anyway. I do think it's interesting. I mean, our temperatures are very much cooler than mm -hmm. most are right now. And I think that helps, right? If it's 65 or less, which is what we've been running at, you know, it's easier and less uncomfortable. That's to true. Than if it's 90 and humid I probably wouldn't want to do it as much then yeah that's true so yeah so we are lucky thank you June Gloom yeah that's true good point thanks <laughs> Monica about it. so speaking of cozy and June Gloom and our 60 degrees are you knitting of course I'm knitting so we'll <laughs> talk about that in on the needles and then we will have on the eagle on the table on the nightstand and our bingo update I've been very busy bingoing. Um, oh, I haven't. <laughs> really? Um, I had a slack week with the bingo, but anyway. Fair enough. On the needles. Yes, we, we, we finished our hat project. Yes, um, we did. You get to be on the needles too, although it's on the... That was know. totally on the sewing machine, although I did hand stitch. But take it away. Anyway, so it started <laughs> off with the Everyday Lined Hat by Denise Bayron who is a local Bay Area artist. I knit it in Cascade 220 in Blaze, which is this bright orange, like, I, I don't, it's not technically hunter orange, but it's that kind of orange that hunters wear that I had in my stash, <laughs> right? Was, it's so funny. You said hunter orange and I thought hunter green is like a really dark, rich green. And I this thought it's a little louder than than a dark, rich orange. And then you said like what they wear to alert. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is hunter orange. Yeah. So she just released this pattern a few weeks ago and was having a knit along and it is a top-down hat, which I have not done before. So that was fun. Normally with hats, you start with the brim and work your way up and then decrease down your stitches for the top of your head. For this one, you start at the crown and work your way down and then knit the brim at the end, which I liked kind of, I think, I mean, I wasn't knitting it for me. It was part of my charity hat bin. So it mattered a little less that it actually fit 
me, but it would be great because my husband, for example, is very particular about where his hat hits on his ears. He likes it generally to hit above them and be more of a short beanie. And it's always tricky to figure out, okay, how much more do yeah. I have to do before I start the decreases? This way you could get the hat to fit really perfectly. So I like that. And then she ends it with a tubular bind off, which I have done before on sweaters. And the way I've done it before has involved putting half the stitches on a second needle, which is fine, but a big pain. <laughs> and then there's a bunch of setting up stitches and then you have to knit it closed. This one, she has it, you're still doing the sewing of it. I think that's what gives you the tubular structure, but she has, she's figured out a way to do it just on one needle. So you don't have to transfer the stitches, which was fabulous. So, so is that a, a two, yeah. <laughs> I was going to give you credit for a new technique, but you t you're taking it. So oh, yes. No, those are, I got two actually, because the top down hat, which I haven't done. I mean, I guess that's not exactly, well, it's, I mean, it's a technique. It's a new way of doing something. Yeah. And then the new way of doing the tubular bind off. So two new things for me. So that was exciting. And then okay. the other cool thing about this hat is that she has, because she's also a sewist, has a lining for it. So you can line it with fleece or line it with something silky. There's, you know, multiple things you could line it with for depending on your needs. I do not sew. So I sent it over to Courtney to do the lining. Take it away, Courtney. So this hunter orange hat arrived in my mailbox because Monica and I are all about distance pass-offs. I set to work searching for a fabric that would be appropriate to line this hat. I don't have a ton of thin silky choices, but I did have some gorgeous silk that matched beautifully. It's like a orange and magenta and pink with a little bit of green paisley. The pattern was good for the lining of a hat. So I cut that to the largest size and it's a super easy sew sewing job. It's just a couple quick seams and the uh, contouring for the um, decreasing in the hat. And then I zigzag stitched all the way around the edge and then folded it under and hand stitched it to the upper brim, not the, not the bottom of the hat, but like the, where the, where the ribbing. ribbing starts and hand stitched that into place. I think if we would do this project again, I would choose the silk doesn't have a ton of give. It slips over my hair and I have a pretty big head. So I feel like most people will have good luck with it, even if they have a lot of hair, but it doesn't, it's not stretchy like the hat is. So I think I would choose more of like a silk, a stretch silk or uh, maybe like a slippery jersey next time. I just didn't have a lot of choices from the stash for that. So that was kind of, that was definitely a new technique for me. And, and it was fabric from my stash. And I was so excited to use that silk because it is kind of beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. It looked really nice. It was fun. Yeah. The hat's just a solid color. So having that fun lining, I think was fun. Yeah. It, ele it <laughs> elevates the whole, like it's a surprise in a hat. Yeah. I just wish it had a lot more stretch to it. I mean, it has like a little bit, oh, because what I did do was I cut it on the bias so that, I mean, silk doesn't have a ton of stretch anyway, but this way it would, you know, have a, a tiny bit more ease. 
And I think it did make a slight difference. So that's something to consider if you want to use a silk that doesn't have a lot of stretch to it is to just cut it on the bias. And I had enough fabric to make that work. So no big deal. And there were people I noticed that did the whole thing hand stitching. So I guess theoretically I could have done that if I really wanted to. Oh yeah, for sure. But I don't have a fabric stash. So that just wasn't going to happen for me. I was happy to jump in and help. And it made me think that next year when we do bingo, we should do a collaboration. Oh yeah. If people think, I mean, I think everybody can find, even if you took a part of something that was. Yeah. Or even like a knit along or. Yeah. That would work. Yeah. Or you get, you know, you get sourdough starter from your friend and take it away. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Let's, I'm going to make a note to add that next year, a collaboration. Yep. Oh, the other thing about the hat that I meant to talk about. So the, the ribbing is a one by one ribbing, which is knit one, pro one, knit one, pro one. I hate doing knit one, pro one. It just seems to take twice as long as any other kind of ribbing. So I was like, oh, it'll be fine. I'll just do two by two. It doesn't matter. It's ribbing, right? Well, when I got to the tubular bind off, I realized the reason you do one by one is because you need to do it to make the tubular bind off work. So I had knit four inches of ribbing so that it could be a fold over brim. And I realized it wasn't going to work. And I started doing, I was like, oh, it'll be fine. I was like, no, it looks like garbage. I can't, I cannot send this out into the world looking like this. And probably no one would really notice that I noticed and it made me feel bad. So I ripped out four <laughs> inches of ribbing and had oh to my gosh. So that. So I did at that point decide I'm just doing two inches. It'll be a plenty big brim and it won't fold over. It's California. It's not going to be that cold that you need a double thick brim for most of the time. So can I, can I tell you how long it took me to do the inner lining? Like 30 seconds. No, it took about 20 minutes. Like once I chose the fabric and then, you know, cutting and stitching and aligning everything. It would have taken me forever. It would have taken me forever. It was about 20 minutes. Yeah. Sewing is faster. That's slightly. That's fair. But then the, the tubular bind off looked lovely and I was very, very happy with it. So it made it worth it. Well, good project. Thanks. Yeah, it's fun, fun to do that with you. Yeah. And then I did a bunch of baby hats because apparently there's something in the water at my husband's office because he kept coming to me asking for, can you knit a hat for so-and-so? Can you knit a hat for so-and-so? And they're baby hats, so yes. Um, and I did one toddler hat because someone has a big sister. So those are just real simple baby hats. The baby ones have the cute little umbilical cord and the toddler one I did with a pom-pom to make that more interesting. So the toddler hat was in purple. I had some leftover plucky knitter. Actually, it was very nice once I actually looked at the tag to see what it was. It was like a merino cashmere nylon DK. So maybe a happy toddler. That's this <laughs> like nice bright purple because that was her favorite color. One baby one was in Malabrigo and I had to actually I knit four baby hats because I had to re-knit that one. I thought it was a worsted and it's really more of an Aaron weight yarn. So when I knit it, it turned out giant, like it almost fit me. <laughs> like that's not going to work. Um, so I had to re-knit that in a smaller size. So that took no time at all. And then the other one, I have no idea where this yarn came from. I'm thinking maybe I picked it up at a restash at my retreat because I can't find any, pro- I don't remember ever having used this yarn. I don't remember, I can't find a project where I use this yarn. I have zero ideas, but it's this nice kind of 
blue gray with some yellow splotches going through it. So that should be good. So those are all done. And then I am working away on my porthole cowl, which is, I've been working, I looked since last August. And oh I my gosh, so, really? Yeah, because I took so many breaks. I didn't have anything else I was working on. I was gonna have to wind up yarn and I kept just sitting down at night to watch TV and just be like, just wanting something to pick up. And now I'm really close. I have about five more repeats of the pattern till I'm done. So really, really close because the four day sweater knit along starts next Wednesday. I can't well, believe I haven't talked about it. Anyway, but the porthole cowl is from Knitting Expat Designs and that's the one with the two sets of gradients mini skeins. So I have one in blues and one in like a light brown to cream and you start at one end starts with dark of one and light of the other and then you switch them through and you end up with these little polka dots in various colors. So it's been fun and I've totally got the pattern down now with the slip stitches and the yarn overs and all this good stuff. And yeah, I'm super close to being done and then I'll have to block it and I think I'll block it first and then sew the ends together. So it'll be a big infinity loop. And the yarn from that is from Three Irish Girls. I've had that yarn, I want to like for years, years, yeah. many years. So I'm very excited to have found a use and to finally use this. I think it's going to be super cute. Um, and then the four day sweater knit along and she's doing a pullover this year. So it should be interesting. I've done this the past two years. Yeah. And this is her fourth year of doing it. Marie Green is the designer and she started off doing it just on her own. She had a deadline on a long weekend and just wanted to see if she could knock it out. And people are like, that's awesome. Let's do that. So she designs the sweaters very specifically to be knit in four days and she's tweaked it in the past years so that if you're knitting a larger size you have a few extra days because there's more knitting involved so that makes sense i have generally done it where i sort of time myself give myself eight hours each day and see or you know eight hours i count that as a day doesn't matter when it happens although normally i've been on vacation so it's been doable but just sitting down and knitting for eight hours is kind of not going to be good for your <laughs> for your hands and your body in general. So I like to spread it out a little more, but try and still get it done. The past years have been cardigans this year. It is a pullover with a yoke neckline with kind of stripes going across the yoke. Fun. In a contrast color. Yeah. It's called soundtrack. And I think it's supposed to look kind of like a record. Um, <laughs> so I am waiting for my yarn to arrive. I ordered it from Neighborhood Fiber Company because she calls for a DK and they have a really nice DK that I had used earlier in the year to make a sweater. So I should have a pretty good idea of my gauge. And I got a nice charcoal gray for the body and then some really bright blue for the stripes. So I think it should be a fairly classic looking sweater and I am looking forward to that. Fun. Yeah. So hopefully the yarn will get here in time. I ordered it. And then they also, she is selling um, Black Lives Matter pins and bags and t-shirts. The design is from Franklin Habit, who's a, another designer, knitter, teacher, knitting god. Super cute little sheep. And so I got a pin to put on my bag. And the, those things aren't going out. They were pre-orders, so they're not going out till July 9th. <laughs> and I didn't fully think that through. <laughs> the knit-along starts on July 1st. So I had to email them yesterday and say, hey, sorry, can you split up my order? I'm happy to pay for that, but I really need my yarn. 
They're like, oh, yeah. yeah, no problem. Totally sending it out tomorrow. So fingers crossed. So I'm excited for that. That's always a, a fun little celebration that I have going on. Yeah, because they were the past two sweaters were really <clears throat> enjoyed. Um, so we'll see how that goes. And that I think is all my knitting. I have to figure out what I'm going to do in the weekend between. I still have my kits that I haven't wound out. So I think I am going to have to do some yarn winding and get started on some things to keep me busy. Some, and like hand calisthenics, you know, to warm up. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Easel? What is on the easel? I'm kind of finding my momentum again, I think. The Good Ship Illustration class is wrapping up. Oh, I have several projects that I haven't completed because it's more of a, this is a more of a thinking about one's style and how to really infuse your work with your personality. All really helpful exercises. So that will be something that I constantly refer back to. It was such a worthwhile class. I am working on the June gouache grid, which is produce. I'm forcing myself to tighten up my color palette with that a little bit, which has been a good challenge. You know, I had all of these different vegetables and then I decided that I didn't really want orange. I wanted more like purples and reds. And so either stylizing the vegetable or, um, or using a different version of that vegetable to, it, it's a stretch for me to, to use non-local color, meaning non-realistic color. So it's a good challenge for me. So you're not using the vegetables, actual colors. You're kind of doing your own thing or. Um, I'm definitely using green where applicable, but oh. instead of using like, like I might use the same family of purples to do carrots and beets. Eggplant is a funny one. Yes. I don't know where my notes are. I can talk more about that next time once I've actually put it into practice. <laughs> um, that's my plan. Is, did your uh, 100 days from last year where you did all the colors, did that, has that helped or informed or had no effect? I think what surprised me was the two colors that I used the least were some of my most successful weeks that year, purple and orange. It turned out to be some of my favorite paintings. And I think that that has to do with orange being a super energetic color and, and that I just wasn't accustomed to using it. And so now I think when I use those colors, I am more aware of the vibrations that they create when they're placed next to other colors. So I'm just trying to fine tune I also took a Skillshare class with Dylan M. It's a digital class, but still works for me. And she talked a lot about color and having, paying attention to color palettes that really work for you and then saving them somewhere. And that's a little bit harder to do in a non-digital way because a lot of times I'm mixing the colors myself. But what I can do is something like paint out for a project, like paint out the swatches and then label what, which paints I used and try to be more consistent with that. And I also have taken a small sketchbook, started painting swatches in there to see, I mean, like lots and taking lots of notes 
to see what's working for a particular sketch and what like doesn't. You paint your dining room and you need to put big colors and yeah. see how it works. Yeah. And then archiving it in a way that I can refer back to now and again. The 100 day project, I'm still chipping away at it. I'm, I'm have a couple missing spots, but I'm up to date. I have notes for what I want to do on those missing spots, but I am up to date right now. And I think what I am going to do is either do a flip through in a couple weeks when, when it's wrapping up and share the whole, like my whole last 50 days or something like that. I'm not sure how I'll do it, but I'm glad that I'm still participating in it, even though it's, I'm not sharing it online. Oh, so I had a request from a kid, one of my kids, to paint a character. And normally I would, I mean, if a client came to me and asked me to paint a character, I would decline because they're copyrighted. But seeing as how it's my own kid and he just wants it for his room and, and he wants to see it in my style. So I feel like I'm totally going to do this. How could you and, say that? Right. So I made a sketch of it the other day and I took it into him and he was so cute about it. And he said to me, it's beautiful, but the horns are too big. And so I already got some critique. <laughs> um, and he wants it bigger. I explained that it was just a sketch and it was a really fun, it went into my joyful project book. It's a, it's a sky bison. <laughs> this whole thing makes me laugh, which is a character from, I think the last airbender. I don't know if I have that right. So that's happening in the joyful, 100 joyful things. And then lastly on the easel is that I have restarted Lemon Latitude Ooh. and we are going to Japan. We're not really going, we're not really going to Japan, but we are going to pretend that we're going to Japan and we're going to explore. It is a huge struggle without the library to do this. And so as we talk about on the table and on the nightstand, I can give a little bit of the challenges that I've been facing in terms of food and literature from Japan. But for now, for the easel, I, that palette that I just showed you is I'm really going to try to do the the Japanese illustrations in a certain color palette um, and I've been looking at like the great wave piece the Hotsukai I think that's how you pronounce it that piece of art and using that as a starting color palette and then folding there and there was another painting there too folding that into how I interpret the illustrations from Japan. I'm so excited. I've been up really late looking at sites and crazy, Japan has crazy vending machines that I can't wait to illustrate and just beautiful temples and shrines and koi ponds and seascapes. And I feel really good to have found a little bit of my groove with Lemon Latitude. Nice. Yeah. All right, so on the table, I have not been doing desserts very much. Like, there's been some here and there, but it has not been the hardcore activity that it was in the past. Which is <laughs> okay. I had kale and mushroom tacos last night, two nights ago, um, that were delicious. Do need to 
cook a lot of kale and a lot of mushrooms. Yeah. Family, but they were good. That was from the Now and Again by Julia Tertian. Got that book a while ago and have not cooked a lot from it. And I've been pulling it out and experimenting with it. It is menus for entertaining, organized seasonally. And then she has things to do with the leftovers. So that's the Now and Again part. Oh, good, good. And I love a menu. I am all about the planning and organizing. And if someone's going to tell me, give me some ideas um, to start with, I am fully on board. I have so many entertaining cookbooks with menus. Because you can always, you know, arrange them for your own personal needs and whatnot. But it's always fun to see a fully realized concept, at least for me. So the kale and mushroom tacos were her taco party. So I pulled the she had a, a lime dressing for salad as well and a spicy crema to top them as with. So yeah, I think the boys were pretty happy with it. It wasn't, you know, their usual taco. Yeah. <laughs> would have liked a little more protein in there, but kale and mushroom is pretty good. And her, the other one she had for that um, menu was uh, chorizo and potato, which also sounded really good. Definitely. And you could certainly use, there's plant-based chorizos, so that I've used before. So I was kind of thinking about doing both, maybe save that for a weekend to have the two different options. So we'll see. I just didn't feel like doing two. Two whole entrees? Two fillings. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot they're, of work. Really easy. I mean, the most complicated part, because I went ahead and I was making it the day I was going to the grocery store. So I just bought the pre-chopped mushrooms, which I don't generally like to do, but I had to, you know, get so many of them. <laughs> I was like, I'm yeah. not chopping. So cleaning the kale was the most complicated part of the meal. So then doing the potatoes and the tree. Yeah. So we'll have to figure that out for future, but looked pretty good. And then I did a zucchini and rice gratin from Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone, which is kind of a classic. I wanted something one dish. It had a lot of steps. You have to make a bechamel. You have to grate zucchini. You have to cook the rice, but it ended up being less trouble than I thought it was going to be. And it tasted really delicious and it made, so we had that. I think I cooked it in a like eight by eight glass casserole um, and then served it with a fruit salad. And that was, we had a smidge left over, which I think I finished off when um, cleaning up the kitchen <laughs> after dinner. <laughs> so it, it was good and people seemed to be full because um, with the rice and the cheese and the bechamel and the zucchini and it was plenty, plenty going on in there, even though it wasn't a ton of stuff. Yeah, with summer, I'm like sneaking zucchini into everything. I mean, it wasn't sneaking, it was a zucchini casserole. So yeah. <laughs> it's fairly obvious that it was there, but I'm putting zucchini into everything because I like it. The rest of my family is, yeah. I like it too. Not thrilled with it, but we had Father's Day, <laughs> the actual Father's Day. More on that later from Courtney. Oh my gosh. Um, and this is why I had pulled out the Now and Again cookbook. I had been flipping through there for some, for something. And she has a steakhouse dinner for vegetarians, which how fabulous is that? So it starts off with stuffed mushrooms. And then you have twice baked potatoes with sour cream and horseradish and white cheddar. And they were delicious. And she throws some parsley in, in there for color as well. Charred broccoli with a lemon lemon and caper vinaigrette, which was delicious. And my husband loves capers. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. So that was, and it was just such a simple little addition to them. I love roasted broccoli, but the vinaigrette just really elevated that. And then iceberg wedge salad. So very classic steakhouse food. Fun. Uh, 
and it was delicious. And then flourless chocolate cake for dessert. And like, that was how it came. The whole meal actually was gluten-free, vegetarian. And if you, you know, swapped out the cheese stuff, you could make it, I think, vegan even. So it was really good. Yeah. So I really, I really enjoyed that. And her directions and pre-planning a lot, most of it could be made ahead of time. So if you were entertaining, entertaining, you could easily do it ahead of time. The potatoes, I mean, you have to roast them. That takes a long time, but they're just sitting in the oven. And then the, once you prep them, it's about 20 minutes worth of work. And everything else was really simple. So I really liked that. The only thing that was weird, it was an entertaining menu, but it only served four. So it was perfect for our family, but I don't usually just have, although I guess in the future, we might just have one other couple over. But I mean, I think any of it, you could certainly double easily enough. So I really liked that. Oh, although I did think it was funny, like, given that I have teenage boys, like we all ate all of our potatoes, like every, we each got our own potato. So it was two fully stuffed potatoes, plus the broccoli and this, I mean, like, and she gives you all these ideas of what to do with the leftovers. And I made a note in the book, what leftovers, because we had nothing left. <laughs> Some of the cake left, but you know, that was gone the next morning. So yeah, that was fun. Boys cooking, they switched methods. Last time I was saying how the big one was going for the recipes and looking things up in books. And the other one was just like, okay, what do I want to make? How do I make that? You know, picking my back pocket recipes. And they switched. So the big one went for a burger. We used Jamie Oliver's Cracking Good Burger. Doesn't use eggs. He uses ground up crackers. Um, so I had to find some gluten free oh. for the filling instead of breadcrumbs or whatnot. And those work out well. And then the little one, well, he's not little. The younger one <laughs> went for sesame chicken from Melissa Clark and her dinner changing the game. I had a note in there that I had made it before. And I did not remember it being quite this delicious. So <laughs> yeah, lots of sesame oil and it's got cashews and dates in there. So it's a little different from the usual stir fry that I do. And that was good. And then last night, the big kid made sticky orange lamb chops. with bean Wow. Carrots. Yeah, it was from the Jamie Oliver Five Ingredients. So actually fairly simple. The recipe called for, I think, the small like French lamb chops, little tiny ones. The ones I got were kind of bigger. So we had to sort of mess around with the cooking times and, but they turned out really nice. And the sauce, making the sauce with just orange juice was a little bit tricky. So that one needs some tweaking, but was a good idea <laughs> overall. And then tonight the younger one is making, and I don't know how to pronounce it, biryani, with it's like a baked rice. Oh yeah, yeah. But he has, it's another Jamie. <laughs> My boys love Jamie Oliver's recipes with leftover curry, which we don't actually have leftover curry. So we're gonna have to kind of make the curry. I'm gonna do a super quick one. Yeah. And then use that as your filling. Because again, who's gonna have leftover? Like I would have to make three amounts of curry. Well, yeah, so I'd have to like make regular curry. I'd have to make a vegetarian curry and then make another batch to have the leftovers. I'm like, whatever. We're just, we'll do a quick little curry beforehand and just use that, it'll be fine. So I'm interested to see how that is going to turn out. But yeah, we're sort of, you know, settling into a, a system. Although we're having our usual issue of like, you go onto all the food blogs and they're all like, summer hot, here's your no cooking recipes. Like, no, no I need something warm and comforting. Where's your risotto section? Exactly. Yep. <clears throat> How about you? How was your father's day? <laughs> Which one? So we're laughing because I made... The last time that Monica and I spoke was like the 11th or the 12th. And I was 100% certain that Father's Day was Sunday the 14th. 
like had a huge plan for it. We have three fathers in this household, basically, or in our like quarantine pod, my father-in-law, my husband, and my brother-in-law. They are big fans of Parmesan chicken. And I was going to do, I, I went and bought everything for like an army's worth of Parmesan chicken and they wanted cherry pie. And the reason why this is so, the reason why this is a big deal is because my younger son's birthday is right in that neighborhood. So we want, I wanted to make sure that I had like a firm plan for Father's Day and then a separate plan for the birthday because we were going to have the, our whole family pod come back for the birthday. So I had everything ready for the Father's Day thing on the 14th and got up and had made the pie shells and was doing like getting ready to bake it off. I think it might've even been in the oven. I was pounding out chicken for the Parmesan chicken. And my husband came home from donating blood and he said, um, today's not Father's Day. <laughs> and he was so nervous to tell me because he thought that I would just stop cooking. <laughs> And he really was looking forward to the whole chicken Parmesan cherry pie thing. So clearly there's something wrong with me. And but I nobody think nobody else said anything either. I mean, you were inviting these people over, right? Yeah. But my father-in-law who has dementia okay, so he has an excuse. My, my brother-in-law who lives alone. <laughs> he has access to a calendar. He's a grown know, Nobody, nobody said anything to me. And so, and, and I had sent my dad who lives far away in Connecticut, I had sent him some pistachio nuts from Dixon, California, and they were going to arrive late. And I felt so bad that they weren't going to be there in time. It was just this whole, oh, so I found out. basically that Father's Day was very late this year. And I had to continually <laughs> double check the calendar to figure out which weekend it was because I did feel like it should have been whatever that day was. Clearly. So clearly the rest of the world. Not was just wrong. You. So we basically celebrated Father's Day on the 14th. And then we had a birthday in the middle of the week. And so I said, we're kind of done with Father's Day. We just did it early, which got a mixed response at best. It was a delicious dinner, by the way. Although my cherry pie was a complete mess. I, don't think, I think I needed to leave it in the oven for like 10 minutes more, but I was really worried about the crust. The mm. crust was awesome. It came out cool. so good. I think it's one of the best crusts. <laughs> That I've ever made. Was this a new um, one or it just turned out really well? No, it just turned out really well. I it knew you needed something. I grated <laughs> frozen, right. I grated frozen butter into the flour and it and then I just like sort of chucked it together. It was I really think that you have to just not care about your crust and that's how it comes out so good. But it could have used, the filling could have used 10 more minutes in the oven to really like bubble and thicken properly. And it was much better the next day when I reheated it in the oven. So that was Father's Day part one. Then my younger son had a birthday and he wanted homemade pizzas. So I cheated and bought 
the pizza dough from Molly Stone's, the Limonica one, I think it's called. I have really good luck with that pizza dough. And we had 11 people coming. So, and this is my family. This is our immediate family pod for people who are freaking out about groups. We've been together since my husband lost his mom. So we haven't really socially distanced from, from our immediate family. Everybody had their own miniature pizza and I kind of pre-baked the crusts so that the kids could build their own pizzas. And that was really fun. And the, the only problem is, is that you can really only do like two pizzas at a time and there's 11 of us. And so the kids went first and then the grownups ate our pizza. And that was pretty fun, actually. We did an ice cream cake from Mitchell's because Mitchell's is open now. Um, and that was that was good. What flavor? Um, uh, he likes Oreo with chocolate cake. Nice. Yeah. And my and my sister, she was saying she had leftover ice cream cake and she used it to make milkshakes and that it was really delicious. But my husband accidentally bought the little ice cream cake. So there were no leftovers. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So then we had a lot of pizza left over for a few days and I didn't have to cook, thank God. And then it was Father's Day again. <laughs> so was there, so actually because you had posted about this on Instagram. So when I was talking with my mom, she wanted to know, was there a Father's Day part two? Um, no, there was not. I yeah. made, he requested oatmeal chocolate chip cookies. Mm. So I made a great batch of oatmeal chocolate chip cookies with half of them having walnuts and they were just delicious. And then we got burritos because <laughs> it's important to support local businesses. Yes. And then I was off and running with Japan. Part of the challenge is that I can't get any cookbooks right now from the library. And so I reached out to friends and neighbors to see if anybody had a Japanese cookbook or Japanese fiction that I could borrow. No cookbooks until next week when somebody comes back, which will be great. And then I found some recipes on the internet. So I did that chirashi, which is like rice with egg and green tea on top. It's, it's kind of a Japanese breakfast. I made that for myself. Then I was on to rice bowls. And rice bowls are kind of a back pocket trick for me anyway, where I can make a big batch of brown rice, a big batch of jasmine rice, and then people can choose what they want or mix it up. I like to do a mix. And then I cook 1,100 pounds of spinach, which cooks down to a little handful. I did make a crispy tofu that I got off of Cookie and Kate, which I don't know if that's authentic anything, but it was a good way to get some protein in there and have it a texture that we'd like. She recommended super squishing it and drying it out. I used a really firm tofu and cubed it up and then tossed it with a little bit of olive oil. And then you sprinkle on like a tablespoon of cornstarch and that helps it get really crispy. And I cooked it on parchment and it worked like a charm. It was great. And I roasted several zucchini, which like mushrooms and spinach cooked down to nearly nothing. And that was a nice garnish basically on top of our rice bowls as well. I did do a batch of nine minute eggs, which is the doneness I prefer for rice bowls and ramen. They're not runny. They're just like a little bit jammy in the center. And that's 
kind of where I'm at with the Japanese stuff. I am desperate to get over to Najiki, which is the um, Japanese supermarket in Japantown, but the line the other day was like 50 people long. I want to get all of the ingredients to make pork gyoza here because that's something my kids love. It's a new technique for me and it would just, I don't know, we love a dumpling. Who doesn't love dumplings? But my father-in-law has requested, this is not Japanese related, he's requested Queen of Monrovia hamburgers. And I said, what is a Queen of Monrovia hamburger? And he told me that it's basically a hamburger that's wrapped around a hunk of cheese. And when you cook it, the cheese melts in the center. And Oh, I've heard of that. I haven't heard it from that name, but I've heard people do that. Yeah. I searched the internet and nobody else calls them that either. (laughs) So I don't know where he got this from. It is lodged in his brain. And so somewhere in between ramen and rice bowls and (laughs) pork gyoza, I'm going to have to throw together a Queen of Monrovia hamburger for my father-in-law. Sure. He's for Japanese stuff. Yeah. I've talked about them before. I have made them a few times they're kind okay. of japanese savory pancake or like fritter oh, the, pancake kind of thing the green onion pancake yes uh yeah i've made them with shrimp i've made them Ooh, yum i did a vegetarian one as well <clears throat> i think i've talked about both versions on the podcast so but i okay. can hook you up with my recipes and there's a bajillion of them they're delicious you don't have any japanese cookbooks do you i don't my friend Jean, who married a Japanese man, and they have several. So I'm going to get a bounty next week. Yeah. That'll be great. Yeah, I think I have various recipes that are sort of, you know, interspersed in other, so I don't, they're not totally authentic, but. Yeah, yeah. And that's what's been on the table here. Nice. Two Father's Days, a birthday, and Japan. <laughs> <laughs> and the Queen of Monrovia. And the Queen of Monrovia. (laughs) Awesome. So on the nightstand, I have been doing a good bit of reading. Shocking, I know. Um, And one book is actually from last time, but I left it off my list for some reason. It was a lovely romance called Bring Down the Duke by Evie Dunmore. It's fluffy and delightful. It is England in the late 1880s. And our heroine is stuck working as an unpaid maid and governess for her cousin, who is awful. But Oxford University starts accepting women's students. And that was a whole rabbit hole that I ended up going down because they started taking students, but they didn't give them degrees until like 1920, which is anyway, a whole other issue. So she gets herself a scholarship and gets to Oxford. The problem she has is that the scholarship is kind of a work study from a woman's suffrage group. So she has to go out and kind of campaign. And actually at this point, they're not even campaigning for suffrage. They're campaigning for the repeal of the women's Married Women's Property Act, which said when you got married, all your property went to your husband. So then women didn't own property. And since only people who owned property could vote, that meant the women couldn't vote. So they had to get rid of that issue first, which was another whole rabbit hole to go down. (laughs) For a light and fluffy book, there was a lot of historical rabbit holes to go down. Anyway, she ends up meeting a duke who is a powerful leader of the conservative party and against the repeal. Shenanigans ensue. Obviously, it all works out. 
So that was fun. Okay, so then the next one I read was The Henna Artist by Alka Joshi, which- That one's on my list. Really good. Oh, good. And I ended up coming across it because a friend of mine knows the author. And oh, fun. a book club where the author came and talked to us. So whole extra level of fun. It's uh, Reese Witherspoon picked it for her book club. So it's getting a lot of press. There is apparently a sequel in the works and a third book, and they are working on a TV series. So, oh my gosh, very good for her. Yeah, so very exciting. She spent 10 years writing this, had a whole other career before she got into writing. So, really exciting things for her. So, The Henna Artist is about Lakshmi, who is in India in late 40s, early 50s, right after independence. And she ran away from an arranged marriage in a small country town and has reinvented herself and created a new life in the town of Jaipur and as a henna artist. And she's doing really well. She's building her own house, doing great. Her husband and a 13-year-old sister that was born after she left, so she didn't know that her sister existed, show up and things start happening. Life is kind of turned upside down and the rest of the book goes on with all the changes and what's going on and It was a really beautiful book. The city is almost another character. Her descriptions of it are really powerful. Um, There's so much about the relationships with her family and the people around her. It was really good. We had a nice discussion. It was really interesting to hear the author's story and how she created it and why. A lot of it was based on her parents' life, things that they had known growing up. The author was born in India but I think that they, they moved here when she was about nine and she hadn't been back. She did a lot of research, did a lot of travel in there. So she kind of had that, that immigrant perspective, but talking to people that she knew, you know, to really inform the book and, and get that feeling. And the, there was a lot of women in our group who are also from India and felt that the descriptions were spot on and they really, you know, felt like they were back home. And so that was, that was good to know as well. The heroine's life just goes, starts going <laughs> up and down. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a novel, so you got to have things happen. But it was really, it was really beautiful. And, and there's some really great characters in there. I definitely recommend that one. And that is The Henna Artist by Alka Joshi. And then I read New Waves uh, by Kevin Wen. This one kind of reminded me of uh, Ready Player One and Little Brother in that it's super focused on technology. But it ended up being a much quieter book than either of those. Mm. So I thought that was interesting. Lucas is our main character, and he is living in New York, mid-20s, Chinese and Vietnamese descent, and working at a tech company, a startup. But he is not an engineer, which no one seems to expect. And he works in customer support. Best friend is Margot, who is a Black woman and the only person of either of those descriptions at the company. And she is an engineer. And she's a native New Yorker. Margot is not a good fit with the company and gets fired. And she convinces Lucas to sneak back into the offices, steal a bunch of data. They're not planning on doing anything with it, just to know that they can and to kind of know it's there. And the story goes on from there. Um, So there's a lot of... Shenanigans? uh, (laughs) Not not so much shenanigans. Um, Okay. Margot ends up dying. So it's kind of processing that looking into her life um they both get jobs at a new startup hmm. there's it sounds uh, more somber than i 
Yeah, and and it feels like the description when I read it, I thought it was going to be kind of an adventure mystery tech like Ready Player One, yeah. maybe not that advanced. Um, it's definitely grounded in New York startup culture of today, and it's really not. It's more about white privilege and what people expect of minorities. But it was really, you know, very thoughtful book. It was a little bit jumping around. Um, it would switch to other characters for just a chapter or two. And I don't, couldn't quite figure out why, but overall, I really, it was an interesting read once I realized that it was not the adventure book that I was expecting. And that is New Waves by Kevin Wynn. I also read I'd Give Anything by Marissa de los Santos, who is... Oh, I like her. Yeah, that's her latest book, ebook from the library, because <laughs> it just right. came out. And I really like her. It's very similar. If you've read her other books, it's very similar. Family drama, but kind of, it's heavy stuff, but kind of in a light sort of way. So this one, the woman, she's been married for a long time, has a daughter who's in high school, and the husband, uh, this one you might have some issues with, her husband gets fired. It was revealed that he was, he wasn't having an affair with the 18-year-old intern, but having an emotional relationship, and when someone saw them together, tried to bribe him to keep it quiet. And that's awesome. why I'm fired. Yeah. Um, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like what's happening with her family. There are secrets from 20 years ago that start to be revealed. You know, it's a, it's a typical Marissa de los Santos book. Quick read, beautiful writing, as she usually does. Yeah. She is a great storyteller. Yeah, exactly. I just finished Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. Oh, book from my decade. So we both picked the same author. That's so funny. In the seventies, yeah. Well, I haven't read a lot of her stuff, and I realized that, and I I wanted to to get back in there and read some more of her works. Um, and I hadn't definitely hadn't read this one. So this one is mostly in Michigan in the nineteen nineteen sixties. Milkman Dead is our main character, and she wanted to write a book from the male point of view. She said in the foreword. So a little bit different. His grandfather was the town's only black doctor. And then his dad is a successful businessman. His parents don't get along. So that's part of the story. It's kind of his childhood and then mostly focuses on a few years when he's an adult, like in his early 30s, kind of becoming his own person. And, and what does that mean? There's um, a side plot with his aunt and a friend. And yeah, there's a lot of things that go on, but it's really just it felt mostly about his internal growth, so more of a character study than a, a plot book. Beautiful work. I mean, it's Toni Morrison. <laughs> so, yeah. It definitely is a book that I, I'm still, <clears throat> I finished it yesterday, and I'm still sort of processing. And what happened, I think most books that I read are fairly one level, um, and this is definitely many, many levels. So I'm yeah still thinking thinking about it, and but it was great. Good work. Thanks. How about you? What's on your nightstand? I read The Vanishing Half, which is the new Brit Bennett. Yeah. And she wrote The Mothers, which my book group discussed maybe back in the fall. The Vanishing Half is extraordinary. Oh, cool. The Vanishing Half is about twin sisters, Stella and Desiree, who are very light-skinned. And they live in Louisiana, and their town 
this was an interesting thing to read about. Their town is definitely known for a freed, freed person's town, historically. It's more modern day book, but the lineage of their town is that it was, was built by not enslaved persons. So their legacy is one of freedom, but they're also prided for having such light skin. And it was, that is a nuance that I am unfamiliar with within the black population that there's that variety of skin tones makes a difference. Yeah. She talks about that in Song of Solomon as well. Yeah. It's, it's not something that I've given a lot of thought to, but it's part of the conversation that is happening right now. And it's very relevant and it's something that it's good for me to be aware of. So the twin sisters are so light-skinned that they can pass as Caucasian. And they both have like almost blondish hair and they have green eyes. And so they sneak out and leave home. They run away from home when they're like 19. And they run to New Orleans and they get jobs. And then something happens and one sister disappears for like nine years. And the other sister gets married to a very dark skinned black man. And they have a very dark skinned baby. And when circumstances force her to go back home to this town where she could pass as white and where this, the skin color hierarchy is very embedded. And she walks in with the, the description in the book is that her baby Jude has blue black skin, super dark compared, especially compared to this very light skinned mother that she is, she's teased at school and she's like even more so than when they were living in Chicago and she was little. So it's this weird shift and it's makes you confront the shades all the shades of skin color in a lot of ways. The other sister, Stella, has slipped into an existence as a white woman and she passes for white. This is like in the 1980s, I think, in LA. And she is almost, well, she comes across as sort of racist against black people, even though she herself is black. She keeps it a secret from her husband and her daughter for like 20 years. And it is, a, it's just an astounding perspective on why it's important to her and why she felt like she had to do it and confronting her own biases and, and not being true to herself. And then how these sisters find each other again and how they're going to move forward. And their daughter's lives are really impacted by it too. Jude, who's very dark skinned. And then Stella has a daughter and she is half white, but she does, she doesn't realize her own heritage. So that is like one giant portion of the book, but there's this excellent storyline that's also happening with Jude when Jude is grown up and she decides to leave their small town and go explore college and her 
herself and her world. And she falls in love with a character named Reese. And Reese is black and is transgendered. And I think that this is so amazingly depicted how the two of them build a relationship around this, around not only their racial heritage, but also around the gender norms that people. Yeah. Yeah. So that their relationship from the outside world looks hetero, except that he is, and it's still going back to that shade of skin tone because he is much lighter and they see him with this very dark skinned woman and they're questioning why he's chosen her but his battles are internal in a different way it's just a fantastic book there's so much to be had and talk and talk about and and beautifully written i say that a lot i know but she it, it was a complete home run for me. I just felt like there were so many pieces of it that were fascinating and deftly handled. And I loved it. Loved it big time. So that's definitely that's on the, the list. I didn't yeah. realize there was the whole part with the daughter as well. I've definitely heard that the, the two sisters part of it, but not yeah. the rest of it. So that's exciting. Yeah, it was really, really good. And then in my net to pick up some Japanese fiction from friends and neighbors, one of my neighbor book group friends had a book of Japanese ghost stories. And so I said, yes, please, I'll take that. And it's from an Irishman named Lafadio Hearn. And he, he lives in, or he lived in Japan. It's very old, I think. And he's not Japanese. And this is one of the challenges that I have with this project is trying to find books that are written by, for Japan, for example, written by Japanese people that take place in Japan or written by, I, I, I don't know what the right recipe is because all I'm really trying to do is get a sense of what Japan is like what the culture is like, what informs their culture. I kind of want it all. And so now I have to be particularly open-minded because my resources are so limited. But I feel like he has taken all of these folklore ghost stories and translated them so that they're accessible to me. So it's a really interesting collection. And I think that ghosts in the Japanese culture are really important. I think it's part, and I don't know a lot about this. It's something I have to research, but I think it's part of their Shinto, a lot of the Shinto beliefs. And so, and how to appease the ghosts. And they're not scary ghost stories. They're kind of beautiful. And I'm really enjoying it. But there, half the book is footnoted, so I'm constantly referring to the notes because it's from a Meiji era woodblock or from a Satsuma War in 1863. There's tons of historical reference, which just has me bouncing around a little bit, but it's also got me asking a lot of questions. So that I'm doing in bits and pieces, and I'm also listening to 
Haruki Murakami's The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle. Have you ever read that? I think so. It's kind of weird. Yeah. And I don't know what to make of it. I don't think I've ever read anything Murakami before. And so I, I just have to give it, this is part of, I've noticed this, I've only done three different countries, but I've noticed this before when reading something from either from translation or from another country is that it takes a little while for me to sink into the cadence of the writer and enjoy the particulars of of their storytelling. So it's great. It's just, I'm so glad to be back at, back at it with the Limb and Latitude stuff. And I have tons of books on hold, of course, but I have no idea when they'll come in. So I will do that a thing from our library. Like they've extended the checkout dates through September 30th. Yeah. And no plans to reopen. Yeah. They, they do. They did say that they were going to try to do some curbside pickup stuff in the next few weeks, which is why I'm really glad my friend Jean is going to lend me a whole bunch of stuff. And I am ordering a couple books that I think fit the bill and that I'll really enjoy. So I just can't do that every single time because that would be very expensive. Yes. Especially because I want to go to Japantown and buy a ton of Japanese grocery items to paint and cook. Oh yeah. And cook with. Of course. Yeah. I read the Wind Up Bird Chronicle in February of 2009. What did you give it? How many stars? Four. Ooh. Okay. I do remember it being kind of crazy, but I mean, four stars. Bingo. As a quick reminder, we are in the midst of bingo, it will run through September 7th, which is Labor Day here in the U.S. That is a Monday, so you have lots of time still. The only real rule is that you need to post a photo on either Instagram or in our Ravelry group of a your completed bingo card, the row or the column or diagonal, whichever works for you. And if it's on Instagram, please hashtag it, CCRR, Summer Bingo 2020. Yeah, I think that's the only rule. And obviously, we want to see what else people are working on but that is not necessary. We've had some chat over in the RAV group, so that's great. And um, yeah, so I got four new squares this time. I know. Wow. Fancy. I still don't have a bingo though. <laughs> I have all these rows of four. So I had the new technique with the top-down hat. Um, the henna artist was a book in a foreign place because it takes place in India. My charity hats, I finally mailed off seven of them, very exciting, to Compassionate, which is a local organization here that does hand-knit items for foster youth in the Bay Area. So that was my make something and put it in the mail. And then I finished Song of Solomon. So that's the book in the decade in which I was born. Bravo. Thanks. So yeah, I I just got to get a bingo. I don't have a bingo. And I really just have one new square which is the use something from the stash because I lined our collaborative hat with the silk that was in my stash because you can't go to the fabric store anyway. And I made some more masks with stuff from the stash. So that counts twice for that square. And then the vanishing half is a book by a person of color, a black author And I already had that square, although I plan to fill that square up with all kinds of black, indigenous, people of color, authors all forever. I am, I guess the the ghost stories and the wind up bird chronicles are set in a foreign place, but I technically haven't finished either. And (laughs) 
So I'm going to wait until next week to fill that in. And, oh, and then I'll be able to do the borrowed book square when I get the pile from my friend. Oh, yeah. So I guess technically are... I've been reading library books, so I have those. But we'll see. Yeah. I have some of your books that I need to, that are on my list as well. So I might try and do that. That feels more officially borrowed than, than a library. Ones. But if we yeah. get to September and I haven't read them yet, then I can just... <laughs> I'm still struggling with my heirloom recipe. Yeah, I've got to figure out what I want to make for that unless I'm counting my cheesy taco shells. But that doesn't feel quite right. Yeah, I might have to go through. My husband has this cookbook that he received as a graduation gift from college, like when he set off on his own. And I might look through that because I think there is a, a family... Manhattan recipe (laughs) that would totally count you know in case I have a third father's day here exactly you never know right that is a delicious option okay that's about it well done I hope everyone is staying safe and wearing a mask and or staying home and and just uh, working on bingo I mean why not that's right until next time make sure to do something you love every day bye everyone bye Show notes can be found at craftcookreadrepeat.podbean.com. You can find us on Instagram as craftcookreadrepeat or courtneysf, that's C-O-R-T-N-E-Y-S-F. On Ravelry, I'm Magdon, M-A-G-D-O-N. And if you have any questions or comments, email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.